If amongst thy leisure hours thou canst spare any for the pursual of this discourse, and dost look to find somewhat in it which may serve for thy information and benefit, let me then advise thee to come unto it with an equal mind, not swayed by prejudice, but indifferently resolved to assent unto that truth which upon deliberation shall seem most probable unto thy reason. And then I doubt not, but either thou wilt agree with me in this assertion, or at least not think it to be as far from truth as it is from common opinion. Two cautions there are, which I would willingly admonish thee, admonish thee of in the beginning. One, here we go. Thou shouldst not here look to find any exact accurate treatise, since this discourse was but the fruit of some lighter studies, and those two huddled up in short time, being first thought of and finished in the space of some few weeks, and therefore you cannot in reason expect that it should be so polished as perhaps the subject would require or the leisure of the author might have done it. Okay, that was number one. Don't expect too much. <laughs> number two, to remember that I promise only probable arguments for the proof of this opinion. And therefore, you must not look that every consequence should be of an undeniable dependence, or that the truth of each argument should be measured by its necessity. I grant that some astronomical appearances may possibly be solved otherwise than here they are. But the thing I aim at is this, that probably they may, they may so be solved, as I have here set them down. Which, if it be granted as I think it must, then I doubt not, but the, dif but the indifferent reader will find some satisfaction in the main thing that is to be proved. Okay, so number two is like, they might be proved in some other way, some other time, but they're still possible the way I'm going to say it here. Let's continue. Many ancient philosophers of the better note have formerly defended this assertion, which I have here laid down, and it were to be wished that some of us would more apply our endeavors unto the examination of these old opinions, which, though they have for a long time been neglected by others, yet in them may you find many truths well worthy of your pains and observation." Tis a false conceit for us to think that amongst the ancient variety and search of opinions, the best hath still prevailed. Time, saith the learned Verulam, 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 <laughs> seems to be the nature of a river or stream. Okay, time seems to be the nature of a river or stream, which carrieth down to us that which is light or blown up, but sinketh that which is weighty and solid. Hmm. A wise parable indeed. It is my desire that by the occasion of this discourse, uh, aside, we have no idea what this is about yet. <laughs> he is really buttering us, us up for this, for something. It is my desire uh, that by the occasion of this discourse, I may rise up some more active spirit to a search after other hidden and unknown truths, since it must needs be a great impediment unto the growth of sciences, for men still so, oh, hold up, 
since it must needs be a great impediment unto the growth of sciences for men still so to plod upon beaten principles as to be afraid of entertaining anything that may seem to contradict them. An unwillingness to take such things into examination is one of those errors of learning in these times observed by the judicious verulam. Questionless there are many secret truths. Questionless there are many secret truths which the ancients have passed over that are yet left to make some of our age famous for their discovery. Ah, okay, there's more, still more to be discovered. If by this occasion I may provoke any reader to an attempt of this nature, I shall then think myself happy and this work successful. Farewell. Well, that was the beginning. Uh, so I wish you guys could see the way this is written. I mean, I'm sure it sounds the way it's written, but there are E's all over the place um, where they shouldn't be. For example, think, T-H-I-N-K-E, myself, S-E-L-F-E, of course. Unwillingness, unwillingness, E. <laughs> questionless, questionless, E. Anyway, let's continue. The first proposition by way of preface. Hold up. That wasn't even the preface? What was that? I don't know. Anyway, okay. Well, here's the preface. That the strangeness of this opinion is no sufficient reason why it should be rejected because other certain truths have been formerly esteemed ridiculous and great absurdities entertained by common consent. Entertained, by the way, with a Y. I think we should all start spelling it like that. Okay, we're still explaining why this is not a crazy treatise. There is an earnestness in hungering after novelty, which doth still adhere unto all our natures, and it is still, and it is, no, sorry, and it is part of that primitive image, that wide extent and infinite capacity at first created in the heart of man for this sense for this, since the deprivation in Adam, perceiving itself altogether emptied of any good, doth now catch after every new thing, conceiving that possibly it may find satisfaction among some of its fellow creatures. Oh my God, I have no idea what you just said right there. But our enemy, the devil, the devil, D-I-V-E-L-L, but our enemy, the devil, devil. <laughs> But our enemy, the devil, who strives still to pervert our gifts and beat us with our own weapons, hath so contrived it that any truth doth now seem distasteful for that very reason for which error is entertained. Novelty, novelty, for let but some upstart heresy be set abroach, and presently there are some out of a curious humor, others as if they watched an occasion of singularity, will take it up for canonical and make it part of their creed and profession, whereas solitary truth cannot anywhere find so ready entertainment. But the same novelty, which is esteemed the commendation of error and makes that acceptable, is counted the fault of truth and causes that to be rejected. How did the incredulous world gaze at Columbus? 
when he promised to discover another part of the earth, and he could not for a long time, by his confidence or arguments, induce any of the Christian princes either to assent unto his opinion or go to the charges of an experiment. Okay, so he knows about Columbus. So we can guess that this is after 1492. Now, if he had such good grounds for his assertion, could find no better entertainment among the wiser sort and upper end of the world, tis not likely then that this opinion which I now deliver shall receive anything from the men of these days, especially our vulgar wits, but misbelieve, but misbelief or derision. Hold up. Especially our vulgar wits, but misbelieve our derision. I wish I understood that. I don't really get that. It hath always been the unhappiness of new truths and philosophy to be derided by those that are ignorant of the causes of things and rejected by others whose perseverance ties them to the contrary opinion, men whose envious pride will not allow any new thing for truth, which they themselves were not the first inventors of. Ooh, I like this guy. Okay, so first of all, he's saying Columbus was ridiculed and wasn't even given audience to certain Christian princes. Um, so his idea was crazy. So, and then he's saying that other people, if they didn't create, uh, if they didn't think of it, it then it of course can't be true. <laughs> I think that's what he just said. Uh, so, okay, so that I may justly expect to be accused of a pragmatical ignorance and bold ostination, especially since for this opinion, Xenophanes, oh man, I have to look that one up, Xenophanes, can I look this up quickly like this, let me see, ooh, there we go, uh, Xenophanes, Greek philosopher, a member of the Elatic school, he argued for a form of pantheism and criticized belief in anthropomorphic gods. Uh, so that I may justly expect to be accused of a pragmatical ignorance and bold ostentation, especially since for this opinion, Xenophanes, a man whose authority was able to add some credit to his assertion, could not escape the like censure from others. I don't know why. Okay, anyway. For Natalie's, for Natalie's Combs, speaking of that philosopher, and this his opinion saith thus, uh, ensues some Latin. Oh, but he translates it. Some there are who least they might seem to know nothing will bring up monstrous absurdities in philosophy that so afterward they may be famed for the invention of somewhat. Okay. The same author doth also in another place accuse Anaxagoras, He's probably another philosopher of folly for the same opinion and more Latin ensues, but a translation tis none of the worst kinds of folly boldly to affirm one side or other when a man knows not what to say tis none of the worst kinds of folly boldly to affirm one side or the other when a man knows not what to say. Is that saying it's wisest to not say anything if you don't know? I'll let you guys decide. If these men were thus censured, I may justly then expect to be derided by most, and to be believed by few or none, especially since this opinion seems to carry in it 
so much strangeness, so much contradiction to the general consent of others. But however, I am resolved that this shall not be any discouragement, since I know that it is not the common opinion of others that can either add or detract from the truth. For, okay, we got some bullet points in here now. For one, other truths have been formerly esteemed altogether as ridiculous as this can be. And two, gross absurdities have been entertained by general opinion. Let me just read those again. So first of all, he's saying, but however, I am resolved that this shall not be any discouragement since I know that it is not the common opinion of others that can either add or detract from the truth. So he doesn't care what other people think. The truth is the truth. And one, other truths have been formerly esteemed altogether as ridiculous as this can be. And two, gross absurdities have been entertained by general opinion. Both truths. Okay, I'm back. I had to get a drink. It's a lot of work to uh, speak in old English like this. Okay, where were we? Okay, so he gave us two bullet points for um, he's preparing us for some insane thing, apparently, that he's going to tell us. I shall give an instance of each that so I may the better prepare the reader to consider things without a prejudice when he shall see that the common opposition against things Against this, I'm sorry, when he shall see that the common opposition against this, which I affirm, cannot any way degrade from its truth. Uh, number one. Okay, so he's going to explain. He's going to give examples of the two bullet points that he just gave. I hope you guys are ready for this. All right, strap in. Number one. Other truths have been formerly accounted as ridiculous as this. I shall specify that of the antipodes, which have been denied and laughed at by many wise men and great schoolers, scholars. I <laughs> wish you guys could see how this is spelled. <laughs> Such as were Herodotus, St. Austin, Lactantius, the venerable Bede, Lucretius, the poet, Procopius, and the voluminous abulensis with others. Herodotus counted it so horribly an, abs an absurdity that he could not forbear laughing to think of it. Uh, is that Greek? That might be Greek. It didn't, doesn't look Latin to me. <laughs> it doesn't really look Greek either, but it's something. Okay, uh, luckily we got a translation here. I cannot choose but laugh, saith he, to see so many men venture to describe the earth's encompass relating those things that are without all sense, as that the sea flows about the world and that the earth itself is round as an orb. Okay, so antipodes, maybe that means like poles. So we're talking about the world being round and people not being able to believe that in, in times past. Uh, okay, that was his quote, Herodotus. But this great ignorance is not so much to be admired in him as in those learneder men of later times <laughs> when all sciences began to flourish in the world. Can't blame him because it was before science, he says. Okay, such was St. Austin who censures that relation of the antipodes to be an incredible fable. 
and with him agrees the eloquent Lactantius, again, um, Latin, I think, and translation. What saith he are they that think there are antipodes, such as walk with their feet against ours? Do they speak any likelihood? Or is there anyone so foolish as to believe that there are men whose heels are higher than their heads? <laughs> That's great. That things which with us do lie on the ground do hang there. That the plants and trees grow downwards, that the hail and rain and snow fall upwards to the earth. And do we admire the hanging orchards amongst the seven wonders? Ooh, seven wonders of the world. Whereas here the philosophers have made the field and seas, the cities and mountains hanging. Interesting. Okay. What sh- okay, and that's the end quote. What shall we think, saith he in Plutarch, that men do cling to that place like worms or hang by their claws as cats? Or if we suppose a man a little beyond the center to be digging with a spade, is it likely, as it must be according to this opinion, that the earth which he loosened should of itself ascend upwards? Or else suppose two men with their minds about the center, the feet of the one being placed where the head of the other is. And so two other men cross them. Yet all these men thus situated according to this opinion should stand upright. I didn't really get that. And many other such gross consequences would follow, saith he, which a false imagination is not able to fancy as possible. Upon which considerations, Beattie also denies the being of any antipodes. Okay, and here's Beattie's reason for the earth not being round. Nor should we any longer assent to the fable of the antipodes. <laughs> well, that's all. That's all he said. Okay. So also Lucretius, the poet, speaking of the same subject, says, Sed Venus stolidis haec omina finxedrit error. <laughs> There's no translation for that one. Uh, unless this is it. That some idle fancy feigned these for fools to believe. Uh, it doesn't look like that's the translation, but maybe that is. I don't know. Anyway. Of this opinion was Procopius Gazius, but he was persuaded to it by another kind of reason. For he thought, by the way, we're still on the first bullet point. Uh, we still got one more to go after this, you guys. <laughs> this guy's thorough, okay? Very thorough. I need a drink. Okay. Um... Of this opinion was Procopius Gazius, but he was persuaded to it by another kind of reason. For he thought that all the earth under us was sunk in the water, according to the saying of the psalmist. He hath founded the earth upon the seas, and therefore he accounted it not inhabited by any. Okay, so now we're getting biblical. This is biblical proof. Nay, Tostatus, a man of later years, Y-E-E-R-E-S, <laughs> a man of later years and general learning, doth also confidently deny that there are any such antipodes, though the reason which he urges for it be 
not so absurd as the former. For the, for the apostles, saith he, traveled through the whole habitable, habitable world, but they never passed the equinoctile. That must be the equator. Okay, so the apostles traveled all over the world, but never passed the equator, I think is what he's saying. This is proof. And if you answer that they are said to go through all the earth because they went through all the known world, he replies, that this is not sufficient since Christ would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of his truth. And therefore, it is requisite that they should have traveled thither also, if there had been any inhabitants, especially since he did expressly command them to go and teach all nations and preach the gospel through the whole world. And therefore, he thinks that as there are no men, no, uh, so neither are there seas or rivers or any other conveniency for habitation. Tis commonly related of one... Um, Okay, so that, that's an interesting one. So so because for some reason they know that they didn't pass the equator, I guess. Maybe no cities are mentioned below the equator in the Bible. Uh, okay, let's see. I lost myself. Evidence, firstly command, teach all nations. Uh, Tis commonly related of one Virgilius that he was excommunicated and condemned for a heretic by uh, sorry it's not heretic i mean it's it is heretic it's just spelled with a capital h and a t-i-q-u-e at the end by zachary bishop of rome because he was not of the same opinion but baronius says it was because he thought there was another habitable world within ours however you may well enough discern in these examples how confident many of these great scholars were in so gross an error how unlikely what a, an incredible thing it seemed to them that there should be any antipodes. And yet now this truth is as certain and plain as sense or demonstration can make it. This then, which I now deliver, is not to be rejected, though it may seem to contradict the common opinion. And now we're going to wait a little bit until this leaf blower stops outside my window. Okay, where were we? Where were we? Where were we? Oh, more leaf blowers. All right, we're pushing through the leaf blowers. There's nothing I can do about it. And in fact, I bet you won't even be able to hear them on the recording. Uh, okay, so I'm not sure what other worlds within this world uh, means, but let's move on. Okay, we are at bullet point number two now. Do we need a reminder of what bullet point two was? Uh, I think we do. It was gross absurdities have been entertained by general opinion. Isn't that what we just talked about, though? Okay, one was other truths have been formerly esteemed altogether as ridiculous as this could be. Yes, world is flat. Gross absurdities have been entertained by general opinion. That's like the same thing, isn't it? I don't really see a difference between those two uh, bullets. Anyway, here is his examples of bullet two gross absurdities have been entertained by general consent i might instance in many remarkable examples but i will only speak of the supposed labor of the moon in her eclipses okay thank you for just giving one example all right moon and her eclipses because this is nearest to the chief matter in hand Ooh, we're gonna talk about the moon 
and was received as a common opinion amongst many of the ancients, and therefore Plutarch, speaking of a lunary eclipse, relates that at such times t'was a custom among the Romans, the most civil and learned people in the world, to sound brass instruments and hold great torches toward the heaven. And then I think that looks like some sort of shorthand Greek or something, I don't know. For by this means they supposed that... They supposed the moon, M-O-O-N-E, was much eased in her labors, and therefore Ovid calls such loud instruments the auxiliaries, or helps, of the moon. Some more Latin. And therefore the satirist, too, describing a loud, cold, a loud scold, says she was able to make noise enough to deliver the laboring moon more Latin. Now the reason of all this, their ceremony, was because they feared the world would fall asleep when one of its eyes began to wink, and therefore they would do what they could by loud sounds to rouse it from its drowsiness and keep it awake by by bright torches to bestow that light upon it, which it began to lose. Some of them thought hereby to keep the moon in her orb, whereas otherwise she would have fallen down upon the earth, and the world would have lost one of its lights, for the credulous people believed that enchanters and witches could bring the moon down, which made Virgil say, some Latin. Okay, so basically, apparently the Romans banged instruments and lit torches so that the moon would, so that the world would not fall asleep. Because I guess the sun is one eye and the moon is the other eye. And so he was saying it would wink when a, when the moon was in her eclipse, he says. I think he's just talking about the phases of the moon, though. Not necessarily an eclipse. No, no. Speaking of a lunary eclipse. Okay, yeah. So during eclipse, I guess the Romans did that. That's interesting. Um... And those wizards, knowing the times of her eclipses, would then threaten to show their skill by pulling her out of her orb, so that when the silly multitude saw that she began to look red, they presently feared that feared they should lose the benefit of her light, and therefore made a great noise that she might not hear the sounds of those charms, which would otherwise bring her down. And this is rendered for a reason of this costume by Pliny and Propertius. Okay, so I'm starting to get the bullet point one was like learned people thought crazy things, and bullet two is common people thought crazy things. I kind of get that. Okay, it's really it's the same thing. Okay, Plutarch gives another reason of it, and and says, uh, and he says, "Tis because they would hasten the moon out of the dark shade wherein she was involved." that so she might bring away the souls of those saints that inhabit within her, which cry out by reason they are then deprived of their wanted happiness and cannot hear the music of the spheres, but are forced to behold the torments and wailing of those damned souls which are represented to them as they are tortured in the region of the air. But whether this or whatever else was the meaning of this superstition yet certainly twas a very ridiculous custom and be berayed a great berayed betrayed <laughs> i don't know 
B-E-W-R-A-Y-E-D, B-R-A-I-D, a great ignorance of those ancient times, especially since it was not only received by the vulgar, such as were men of less note and learning, but believed also by the more famous and wiser sort, such as were those great poets, Stasichorus and Pindar. And not only amongst the more sottish heathens, uh, who might account that planet to be one of their gods, but the primitive Christians also were in this kind guilty which made S. Ambrose so tartly to rebuke those of his time when he said, I'm not going to read that uh, translation, when your heads are troubled with cups, then you think the moon to be troubled with charms. Okay. And for this reason also, oh, I thought was this was just one example. <laughs> and for this reason also did Maximus, a bishop, write a homily against it wherein he shewed the absurdity of that foolish superstition. I remember that Ludovicus Uives relates a more ridiculous story of a people that imprisoned an ass for drinking up the moon, whose image appearing in the water was covered with a cloud, and the ass was drinking, as the, as the ass was drinking. Hold up, I gotta, I gotta get this right, okay. So someone, a people imprisoned an ass for drinking up the moon, whose image appearing in the water was covered with a cloud as the ass was drinking, for which the poor beast was afterward brought to the bar to receive a sentence according to his des deserts, where the, where the grave senate being set to maximum, oh, I'm sorry, where the grave senate being set to examine the matter one of the council, perhaps the wiser, perhaps wiser than the rest, rises up and out of his deep judgment thinks it not fit that their town should lose its moon, but that rather the ass should be cut up and that, and that taken out of him, which sentence being approved by the rest of those politicians as the subtlest, subtlest way for the conclusion of the matter was accordingly performed. Whoa. So an ass was drinking from the trough and you could see the reflection of the moon, I'm guessing, in it. And then a cloud covered the moon at that time. So they thought the ass drank up the moon. So they chopped it up. Okay. But whatever this tale were true or no. Oh, see, it's made up, I bet. I will not question However, there is absurdity enough in that former custom of the ancients that may confirm the truth to be proved and plainly declare the insufficiency of common opinion to add true worth or estimation unto anything. So that, so that, from, so that from that which I have said may be gathered thus much. Okay, we have two more bullet points here. One... That a new truth may seem absurd and impossible, not only to the vulgar, but to those who are otherwise wise men and excellent scholars. And hence, it will follow that every new thing which seems to oppose common principles is not presently to be rejected, but rather to be pried upon, I'm sorry, to be pried into with a diligent inquiry, 
since there are many things which are yet hid from us and reserved for future discovery. I can get behind that. Two, that it is not the common sense of an opinion that can privilege it for a truth. The wrong way is sometimes a well-beaten path, whereas the right way, especially to hidden truths, may be less trodden and more obscure. Mm, I like that. Those are actually very good. Okay. Uh, two more paragraphs till we get to proposition two. And one of those paragraphs is extremely long. <laughs> Not gonna joke. Um, weird. Where do I even see proposition one? I didn't know we were in proposition one. Apparently we're in proposition one though. Well, let's get through it. All right. Two more paragraphs. True indeed, the strangeness of this opinion will detract from, will detract much from its credit. But yet we should know that nothing is in itself strange, since every natural effect has an equal dependence upon its cause, and with the like necessity doth follow from it, so that tis our ignorance which makes things appear so. And hence it becomes to pass, and hence it comes to pass that many more evident truths seem incredible to such who know not the causes of things. You may as soon persuade some country peasants that the moon is made of green cheese, as we say, in parentheses, as that tis bigger than his cartwheel, since both seem equally to contradict his sight. Yeah, okay. And he has not reason enough to lead him farther than his senses. Nay, suppose, saith Poltark, a philosopher should be educated in such a secret palace. No, sorry. Let me start over. (laughs) Nay, suppose, saith Plutarch, a philosopher should be educated in such a secret place where he might not see either sea or river and afterwards should be brought out where one might show him the great ocean telling him the quality of that water that it is blackish, salt, and not potable. And yet there were many vast creatures of all forms living in it which make use of the water as we do of the air, questionless, he would laugh at all this as being monstrous lies and fables without any color of truth. Why? A philosopher blindfolded should be... Why? <laughs> I missed it. As you such a secret, that he might not see either sea or river and afterwards should be brought out where he, one might show him the great ocean. I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to worry about it. Um, but now I lost my place. Just so, just so will this truth, which I now deliver, appear unto others, because we never dreamt of any such matter as a world in the moon. And there you have it, folks. Because the state of that place hath as yet been veiled from our knowledge, therefore we can scarcely assent to any such matter. I guess when he says a world in the moon, I think he's meaning a habitable place in the moon. Things are very hardly perceived which are altogether strange to our thoughts and our senses. The soul may be less difficulty may with less difficulty be brought to believe any absurdity when as it has formerly been acquainted with some colors and probabilities for it, but when a new and an unheard of truth shall come before it, though it have good grounds and reasons, yet the understanding is afraid of it as a stranger, 
and dares not admit it into its belief without a great deal of reluctancy and trial. And besides things that are not manifested to the senses are not assented unto without some labor of mind, some travail and discourse of the understanding, and many lazy souls had rather quietly repose themselves in an easier air than take pains to search out the truth. Yeah, that's true. The strangeness then of this opinion, which I now deliver, will be a great hindrance to its disbelief. But this is not to be respected by reason. It cannot be helped. I have stood the longer in the preface because that prejudice which the mere title of the book may beget cannot easily be removed without a great deal of preparation. Whew, yeah, I'd say so. And I could not tell otherwise how to rectify the thoughts of the reader for an impartial survey of the following discourse. That was paragraph one of two, you guys. So we got one more little short one here. Um, but yeah, um, I'd say you have a big preface. Okay, here we go. I must needs confess, though I had often thought with myself that it was possible there might be a world in the moon, yet it seemed such an uncouth opinion that I never durst discover it for fear of being counted singular and ridiculous. But afterwards, having read Plutarch, Galileus, Kepler, oh, okay. I don't know who Plutarch is. Uh, let me see if it looks him up real quick. Plutarch, Greek biographer and philosopher, uh, 46 um, BC, I'm guessing, to one, no, 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 oh, circa 46 C. What does that mean? Circa 46 Common Era? No. Greek's got to be BC. Okay, whatever. Anyway, uh, so Plutarch is some Greek dude. Galileus, that's got to be Galileo, just in some other thing. And then Kepler was an astronomer as well. Uh, okay, with some other, okay, where are we? Um, for fear of being counted singular and ridiculous, but afterward having read Plutarch, Galileus, Kepler, with some others, and finding many of mine own thoughts confirmed by such strong authority, I then concluded that it was not only possible there might be, but probable that there was another habitable world in that planet. In the prosecuting of this assertion, I shall first endeavor to clear the way from such doubt as may hinder the speed or ease of farther progress. And because the suppositions implied in this opinion may seem to contradict the principles of reason or faith, it will be requisite that I first remove this scruple, showing the conformity of them to both these, and proving those truths that may make way for the rest, which I shall labor to perform in the second, third, fourth, and fifth chapters, and then proceed to conform such propositions, which do more directly belong to the main point in hand. Uh, so that was either the preface or proposition one. But I'm looking back, and like I said, I don't see where... Oh, there it is. The first proposition by way of peace. I'm sure I read it and you guys heard it, but uh, it, it was hiding because the, it's actually written with like a big graphic of swirly, cursive-looking thing, and then the proposition. And it doesn't have... Uh, doesn't have a number one in it. And the second one does. It's proposition two. So, throwing me off. Okay, well, um, so I thought we'd just jump right into it. 
without even giving the title, but the title might be in the podcast. Maybe it won't. I don't know. Anyway, this is uh, a treatise by, I think you can call it a treatise, uh, by John Wilkins from, when was it? 1638. So Galileo, uh, looked at, you know, the moon and whatnot, Jupiter, 1609, I believe. So we're talking 30 years after, more or less. Um, And it's called The Discovery of a World in the Moon, or a Discourse Tending to Prove that Tis Probable There May Be Another Habitable World (laughs) in That Planet. I love it. I love this guy. He's like, look, I don't know for a fact. I think it's probable. That's good. Okay. Well, let's see. This might be episode one. I don't know. Or this might be the only episode. (laughs) But I'm going to continue on now with proposition two. That a plurality of worlds doth not contradict any principle of reason or faith. Ooh, this is going to be good. I like these faith-based ones. I need a drink first. Okay, here we go. Proposition two. Tis reported of Aristotle that when he saw the books of Moses, he commented, he, he commended them for such a majestic style as might become a god. But withal, he censured that manner of writing to be very unfitting for a philosopher because there was nothing proved in them, but matters were delivered as if they would rather command than persuade belief. You know what? People people back in this time were not fools. You know? These are I I I, I totally like get this guy. Okay, so Aristotle's saying he read uh, the books that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Am I missing one? I might be missing one. Numbers. Is that next? I think numbers is in there somewhere. Um but not fit for a philosopher because it didn't prove anything. It just kind of said it as it is. Okay. Uh, and tis observed that he sets down nothing himself, but he confirms it by the strongest reasons that may be found, there being scarce an argument of force for any subject in philosophy, which may not be picked out of his writings. And therefore, tis likely if there were in reason a necessity of one lonely world, I'm sorry, of one only world, spelt weird, O-N-E-L-Y, that's not that word, weird, it's just an extra E, that he would have found out some such necessary proof as might confirm it, especially since he labors for it so much in two whole chapters. But now all the arguments which he himself urges in this subject are very weak and fair enough and far enough from having in them any convincing power. Who's he talking about? Is it still Aristotle talking about Moses? I don't know. I'm not going to go back. Therefore, it is likely that a plurality of worlds doth not contradict any principle of reason. However, I will set down the two chief of his arguments from his own works, and from them you may guess the force of the other. The number one, the one, is this. Since every heaven, since every heavy body doth naturally tend downwards, and every light body upwards, 
What a huddling and confusion, confusion must there be if there were two places for gravity and two places for lightness. Hold up, gravity? In 1638? Gravity? I thought that was Newton after 1638. 1638. Let's just look it up real quick. You guys don't mind, do you? Gravity. Uh, 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 uh. Gravity. History of gravitational theory. Greco-Roman world, ancient India, scientific revolution. Um, Newton's theory of gravitation. By, by 1687... English mathematician Sir Isaac Newton published Principia, which hypothesizes the inverse square law of universal gravitation. So he put it into um, mathematics. Maybe the word existed, though. You know? Okay, we're not going to spend more time on this. That's surprising, though. Okay, gravity. Maybe it shouldn't be surprising, though. Uh, da -da -da, here we go. Okay, let's just do this over again. So the the one is this. Since every heavy body doth naturally tend downwards and every light body upwards, what a huddling and confusion must there be if there were two places for gravity and two places for lightness. For it is probable that the earth of that other world would fall down to its center and so mutually the air and fire here ascend to those regions in the other, which must needs much derogate from the providence of nature and cause a great disorder in his works. I have no idea what that is talking about. To this I answer that if you will consider the nature of gravity, you will plainly see there is no ground to fear any such confusion. For heaviness is nothing else but such a quality as causes a propension in its subject to tend downwards towards its own center. So for some of that earth to come hither would not be said a fall, but an ascension. Oh, interesting. Since it moved from its own place, and this would be impossible, saith Ruvio, because against nature, and therefore no more to be feared than the falling of the heavens. I'm just going to keep going. Another argument he hath hath from this master Plato that there is but one world because there is but one first mover, God. I've heard about this stuff. Like basically who got everything rolling. Um, 